This episode of the Outside Podcast is brought to you by Sonos, maker of the Sonos Roam, the portable smart speaker for all of your listening adventures. Like just about everyone, for me, this summer is about getting out into the world. My favorite new habit is the simple picnic, kicking back in a park with family and friends and playing a little music. The Roam is the perfect Bluetooth speaker for the occasion. It's smaller than a biking water bottle, weighs less than a pound, and yet it delivers the kind of deep, full sound you'd expect from a much bigger speaker. And because the Roam is drop-resistant, impervious to dust, and even waterproof, you don't have to worry when your outing goes totally sideways because of a bee. Okay, now you you got it angry. (laughs) I've taken the Roam to the beach, brought it on my little boat, and thrown it in my pack for all types of excursions. With automatic true play tuning, it adapts to the surroundings for a sound that's always astonishingly clear and balanced, no matter what else is happening around you. Check out the Roam for yourself and discover sound made easy at Sonos.com. From Outside Magazine, this is the Outside Podcast. So if I were to run into you at the gym and you're working out, like, how much are you sweating? What what does that look like? I mean, you're basically just going to see a guy who's drenched. When I'm on a treadmill at a gym, I mean, I'm just pouring buckets. That sweat is not only getting on my own treadmill, it's gotten onto the neighboring treadmill. So I, I swear I've had people move away from me at the gym because I'm just showering them inadvertently. Uh, you know, I sometimes feel like I'm actually creating my own ambient weather system in the gym, like my own little microclimate. Uh, it's a salty, hot, humid microclimate. Meet outside contributing editor Tom Vanderbilt. He's a committed amateur athlete, the author of some awesome best-selling books, and also a very sweaty dude. Okay, so it's a hot and humid July day today. And if I were to get on the subway in New York City and, and wait on that platform, these are not air conditioned, so it's it's like an inferno. I will be drenched by the time I actually get on that subway car. And then subway cars are tend to be very crowded. Chances are I'll be like wedged against someone, standing over someone, so you never get a seat. And there'll be droplets of moisture coming off me. And then I start to freak out that, you know, I'm getting that person wet. And so I start to think about my sweat even more. And I think that only only accelerates the process. Like that anxiety just creates more sweat. So, you know, luckily there is air conditioning. So maybe by the time the journey has completed, I'll be dry. But then I get off the train, enter that hot, humid inferno again, and by the time I get to whatever meeting I'm going to, I have to stop at a coffee place to grab some napkins, just just to mop up so I don't look like I've just run the New York City Marathon. A few months ago, Tom reached out to me with great excitement about an upcoming book he'd heard about called The Joy of Sweat, The Strange Science of Perspiration. The author is Canadian writer and chemist Sarah Everts. And after Tom got a hold of an advanced copy of the book, he was gushing about his newfound understanding of sweat. And so we asked Tom to call up Sarah at her home in Toronto 
and explain his condition and see if she could tell him what was going on, what it all means for anyone who's wondered why they sweat the way they do. So I'd like you, if you could, to sort of diagnose my own sweating and sort of and sort of hopefully comfort me or just give me guidance into how I should feel about the way I'm sweating and whether there's any larger conclusions we can draw from that. Okay. So first of all, solidarity. This is absolutely me too. Um, I have very enthusiastic sweat glands. And in terms of your questions, I think I've got mostly good news for you. So I think the first thing I'd say is that Sweating profusely does not mean you're out of shape or that your fitness is subpar. In fact, I think it means quite the opposite. There are many athletes that say that they sweat very quickly and very voluminously right when their workouts begin. And that's because their bodies have learned that when that human who's in control of those bodies starts to exercise, they are likely going to go very hardcore and to do so for quite some time. So your body is probably thinking, oh gosh, there he goes again. Let's get cracking on the cooling. Um, I know he's just going to be doing this for a long time and we don't want to um, get heat stroke. So score one for me and my intuitive body instantly firing up the cooling systems as it detects an increase in energy production. But, of course, that's not the whole story. And so on one hand, it's great that your body can anticipate your behavior. But, and here's the counterpoint, your voluminous perspiration does kind of mean that you're not a very efficient sweater. So people who are perfectly acclimated um, sweat only as much as they need to cool down. So, yeah, I knew I had issues. But it's not like I'm the only one sweating all the time. It's just that being an inefficient sweater makes me the soaking wet guy. Those seemingly dry people on the subway grossed out by me are perspiring too. They just don't know it. They are just releasing sweat at precisely the right flow rate so that evaporative cooling, evaporation happens in concert with their body temperature and without wasting uh, water, those drips of sweat that are you know rolling down your body. So maybe... You're a little bit inefficient at sweating, but as long as you can replenish your lost bodily fluids, then it's, you know, no sweat off your back. Or, well, no, actually, technically it is, but it's not a problem. <laughs> and Everett says there's little I can do to change the way I sweat. Sure, I might acclimatize to the heat a bit, but otherwise I'm stuck with the same sweat glands I was born with. Which raises the question of why any of us are born with sweat glands. Basically, why humans do sweat the way they sweat. And, it, and as you describe, it's an evolutionary story. And there were other pathways taken by other creatures. And you have some very memorable examples of, of uh, you know, obviously dogs pant, but vultures, I think, poop on themselves to cool themselves. Um, so, you know, in, in terms of, of sweat seems a pretty good deal compared to some of those other uh, methods we, we could have chosen. But why, why and how did, did humans arrive at at sweating. Yeah. So I think it's kind of a surprise to some people, but, you know, evolution really granted us the temperature control jackpot when, you know, we evolved sweat glands. It is so much better than um, what's on offer for many other animals. First of all, um, sweating so is evolution's most efficient cooling strategy. And not only do we cool down that way, but we have like millions of little cooling machines embedded in our own skin. So effectively, the way it works is, you know, 
We know that when, when our body temperature rises, we get hot, we dispatch sweat to our relatively naked skin. And to evaporate sweat, you need to consume heat. It's just basic physics. And so that sweat evaporation process literally whisks away heat from our body. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a super useful technique for cooling down, but it's a technique that whose efficiency relies on us effectively being furless. So think of a furry dog. It pants to cool down, evaporating heat away from its wet tongue. That tongue is the only hairless surface that dog has on offer, right? <laughs> Meanwhile, we've got our whole bodies available to us for that evaporation. And so if you think back to the heaty days of, of human evolution, being able to sweat means we could cool down while being on the move. It's why we can run marathons, because we can cool down while we are running. Most other animals, including our predators and especially our prey, most can sprint faster than us. But, you know, they've got to stop running to avoid death by heat stroke, which incidentally is a really terrible way to die. Um, mm. And so you can imagine an early subsistence hunter. You know, we could race after our prey which would inevitably sprint away faster than us, but then it would have to stop to rest and we would catch up, forcing um, the prey to sprint again and again until they were so weakened that we could kill them or they you know, died of heat stroke. So it's a huge evolutionary advantage that is tied, though, to being relatively hairless. So when we got cold, we put on you know, pelts of other animals, but sweating means we could hunt in the heat of the day when many other animals are trying to stay cool in the shade. And, you know, as you point out, dogs rely on their one hairless area, their tongue, mm -hmm. to do that evaporative cooling. Our closest primate cousins, chimpanzees, which have fur, primarily pant to cool down too. And other animals dispatch other bodily fluids to cool down. So some seals, for example, pee on themselves because they don't have sweat glands at their disposal. And that evaporation of that liquid pee is what helps cool them down. Vultures, as you said, pr uh, produce kind of a liquidy poop, which they dispatch to their legs um, to help cool down. Honeybees vomit on themselves, again, to evaporate off the liquid parts to cool down. The list goes on. Pigs wallow in mud. Kangaroos lick themselves. Koalas literally hug trees, all in the name of cooling down. No animal, however, sends as much liquid to the skin as humans, which makes you wonder what sweat is. Everts writes that, like many people, she once assumed sweat was simply a banal mix of salt and water. But it's a far more complicated cocktail than that. So there are hundreds of molecules coming out in your sweat. And yeah, my assumption that, you know, sweat was just salt and water was so wrong. Pretty much anything swooshing around in your blood is going to percolate out in your sweat. And that's because your body sources sweat from the liquid part of your blood. So it's pretty much, sweat is pretty much everything minus the blood cells, the immune cells, the platelets. All that is filtered out and the liquidy parts left over is captured by the sweat glands and dispatched to the skin when you overheat. So lots of stuff is swooping around in your circulatory system and all of that comes out in sweat. So things you'd expect like glucose, lactic acid, you know, stress molecules. 
but also like evidence of food and drink and drugs that you consume. So uh, before we chatted, uh, I had a coffee. And so I've got caffeine metabolites leaking out um, of my sweat glands at this very moment. <laughs> if I had added a shot of whiskey to my uh, morning brew um, or taken something stronger and or possibly illegal, that too would be emerging in sweat. And so there's like evidences of diseases coming out, um, including uh, people are looking into diagnosing some kinds of cancers that way. And your body is also intentionally infusing your sweat with molecules that do crowd control on the trillions of microbes that are living on your skin. And so, yeah, it is so much more complicated than just salt and water. And all that stuff that's coming out, is that just sort of an, an accidental byproduct? I mean, is there a reason that stuff comes up or that's just getting sort of flushed in the cooling process? Right. It's just coming out incidentally, which kind of speaks to this like crazy detox myth. And it is such a, a myth, right? When we sweat, we are not detoxing stuff out of our body. What we are doing is trying to cool our body down and anything that happens to be coming out um, is just there along for the ride. Because if you think about it, if you actually uh, sweat to detox, you would have to sweat out all your 12 pints of blood to get that you know, whatever it is that you were trying to get out to get it out. Instead, evolution gave us the kidney, right? So the kidney filters out uh, any nasty stuff that's in your blood. And effectively, what comes out in your sweat is more just kind of like a microscopic or, or a picture of what's going on inside. It's not a detox strategy. That is like a really huge myth that you see in a lot of uh, places. And yeah, you're just sweating uh, to cool down. If you need to detox, uh, yeah, work on you know your kidney health. <laughs> I think you, you mentioned, if I have it right, that if, if you truly detoxed through sweating, you would basically be dead. Yeah, exactly. Because if you think about it, right, where you are getting sweat, that's you're getting that from the liquidy parts of your blood. So if you had to get all the liquidy parts of your blood and all the things inside it out of your body to, you know, detoxify, then you would literally have to get rid of all the liquid parts of your blood, like all of it. Um, and you would, you know, dehydrate and probably shrivel up and die. So that is not really a great strategy and probably not what people are aiming for when they want to detox. We'll be right back. Earlier, we talked about the Sonos Rode, the drop-resistant, waterproof smart speaker for all of your listening adventures, including picnics that might uh, get a little chaotic. But while the durable Rome is ready for any outing, it's also a fantastic in-home speaker, on its own or grouped with your other Sonos speakers to create an immersive listening experience. The Rome automatically connects to your home network on Wi-Fi, and you can seamlessly control the Roam with the Sonos app, AirPlay 2, and your voice with Amazon Alexa or Google Assistant. Within minutes of taking the Roam out of the box, I had it set up on my system. And because the Roam tunes itself to any space, I can go from listening to podcasts in the morning while working out in the garage to playing music in the kitchen while cooking dinner. And everything sounds exactly the way it's supposed to. One of my favorite things about the Rome 
which I never expected, is exploring new music through Sonos Radio, which lets you stream an endless list of songs and includes exclusive stations curated by a diverse mix of artists, from Tom York to Brittany Howard. Check out The Roam for yourself and discover Sound Made Easy at Sonos.com. Everyone is always sweating, writes author and self-confessed enthusiastic sweater Sarah Everts in her new book, The Joy of Sweat. Most of the time, we might not notice it. It's what scientists call insensible perspiration, the reason you leave fingerprints behind. But the way we respond to sweat, ours and everyone else's, that's when things can get sticky. We seem to have this, this sort of like bimodal, you know, ambivalent relationship to sweat. I mean, I remember growing up, there were these dry idea ads, which was never let them see you sweat. It's okay to be anxious, as long as you don't look anxious. Dry idea, never let them see you sweat. And I, I really sort of took that message on board, you know, like the sweat was this indicator of, of your, your weakness or, or something. But uh, on the other hand, there's a, a more recent antiperspirant ad starring NBA's Kevin Durant, in which you know, shows him sweating during a workout, you know, copiously. It might look like your body is crying. That's because it is. And, and he has a moment where he wonderfully calls sweat tears of joy. But these are tears of joy. If you listen closely, you'll hear it. So I was thinking it reminded me a little bit of, of what uh, Mary Douglas, the noted anthropologist, once said about dirt. This She kind of defined dirt as matter out of place. So whether something was sort of good or bad, you know, is more about the context you found it in rather than the thing itself. And I wonder if sweat sometimes in your mind seems that way as well, that, you know, there's sort of good or bad sweat depending on, on the context and how we choose to frame that. I think context is, is definitely important, right? So if you go into a sauna with a bunch of other people and everybody is sweating profusely, there's, yeah, not much stigma attached to that. Whereas, you know, if you show up at, you know, a business event and everybody else has come in their air-conditioned cars and, and you biked um, and you're, you know, dripping and everybody else is, you know, crisp and, you know, supposedly professional looking. Um, but although I think context is important, I... I also think control is really uh, an issue here. So Mm. humans really don't like to be out of control. And sweat is utterly and totally out of our control. I mean, if you think about, you know, all other bodily processes, like things like burps, farts, pee, poop, even breathing, we can control that for at least a few seconds. We can hold back a burp uh, at least for a few seconds. But sweating? Yeah, we have no control over that, right? And I think that there's something about this thing that is so obvious. I mean, when when we start to sweat, like literally our whole body gets wet. Um, it's so obvious and it's so out of our control that I think that leads uh, in part to this mercurial relationship that we have with sweat. And I wonder, do you think that, you know, sometimes I've noticed this in that subway example, for example, I, I suddenly think about how much I'm sweating. And I, I try to subconsciously, you know, could I do like a Zen meditation thing to stop myself sweating? But the idea that I'm focused on it is probably triggering some kind of anxiety, which may only be increasing the rate of sweating. No, I think it's actually pretty right on. So 
we start sweating kind of via two mechanisms. So we have like tons of temperature sensors. And, you know, the moment our temperature sensors uh, get the like, uh oh, it's getting a little hot, then boom, our, our sweating begins. But there is another way to start sweating, and that's uh, hormonal. And so, you know, like it's it's the same sorts of things as uh, it's adrenaline, right? So when when you are anxious or worried or excited or stressed, and you have that hormone circulating your system, often we begin to sweat as well. And so, yeah, I think you're perfectly right. Like that intentionality, I cannot sweat. I must, you know, I must be zen. First of all, that's not going to be able to control the sweating that's coming from, you know, your temperature sensors, mm-hmm. right? Like you, you cannot control those at all. And I do also wonder if it's counterproductive, right? Like as you focus, it's like trying to fall asleep. I must fall asleep. I must fall. You can't, you know, that generally doesn't work. <laughs> so I wonder, you know, we often, you know, sweat is, is often deeply associated with with smell and, and efforts to combat that. But I'm wondering, you know, why why actually does sweat have odor and and why the armpits seem to be the locus of all this uh, attention and innovation? I mean, is there, would there be other areas of the body? I, I you know, thinking of like the back of, of, of the knees or I, I don't know, pick, pick some other area. Why, why the armpits and, and why is there that, why is there a scent basically to, to put it most simply? <laughs> yeah. Why do we stink? Um, so, <laughs> So far, we've been talking about, um, you know, a kind of sweat called eccrine sweat. So that salty stuff that helps keep your body uh, temperature in check. But there is another kind of sweat. <laughs> and it's, oh, uh, yeah, sorry, there is another. And it's um, it called uh, apocrine sweat. And it comes from these special glands um, that uh, start producing um, actually kind of a waxy sweat. Uh, anywhere where you grow hair at puberty. So um, wherever there's hair that grows, um, uh, attached to that hair follicle is um, another little sweat gland that's pumping out some waxy stuff. And it's that waxy sweat is what's responsible for turning armpits into stink zones at puberty. But, you know, when you tell people at like, you know, a dinner party or, you know, just on the street that you're writing a book about sweat, you hear all sorts of interesting stories. Um, I've started to call them sweat confidentials. One woman told me that her uh, boyfriend actually puts antiperspirant on the backs of his knees because he's super sweaty there and gets embarrassed when his pants get a wet patch, you know, uh, on on the leg. So, yeah, you never know um, where people are putting antiperspirant. But, you know, the important thing to remember, though, is, you know, sweat doesn't actually have an, much of an odor when it hits the skin surface, whether it's that salty stuff. I mean, unless you've gone hard on the alcohol or the, the garlic, um, but doesn't have much of an odor, even that waxy stuff from your armpit sweat glands. It's pretty, you know, odorless uh, when when it hits the skin, and the odor actually comes from bacteria and other microbes living in your armpits that eat that sweat. And in fact, that waxy sweat from the apocrine gland uh, produce, is like delicioso, as my kid would say, for for bacteria. They love it. They eat it up. 
And effectively, their metabolites are the things that are making you stink. Um, so, you know, you can always blame your BO, your body odor on, um, you know, bacterial poop, which <laughs> I don't know if that's a win or a loss. But um, but and so when you put on like deodorants, um, deodorants often have uh some kind of antiseptic, some kind of thing that kills bacteria. And so effectively, uh, what you do when you wear deodorant is you kill the populations of bacteria in your armpits so that they don't eat your sweat and turn it stinky. Whereas antiperspirants actually cut off the food supply. Um, antiperspirants often contain things that plug your sweat pores. And so it like it's like buffets closed for the armpit bacteria. You know, they achieve two ends, right? Deodorants, you know, block odor and antiperspirants effectively block both odor and, you know, wet patches. We all worry about sweating at work or a dinner party. Soaking through your shirt in those contexts is embarrassing. But like a lot of athletes, I also worry about sweating when I exercise. Not because of how I look or smell, but because I sweat so much that I'm scared I might be literally draining my tank. I ask Everett just how concerned I should be. I sometimes find that I myself have a very crude biomarker, which is, you know, this sort of salt ring that emerges during during cycling on a hot day. And sometimes someone I'm with will say, oh, my God, you must you're going to be dehydrated. You have so much salt on you. Um, I wonder, you know, it, it is that true? And And then. You sort of say in the book, you know, that that it, it's really difficult for us to replenish all of the salt we lose during during an endurance event. That's something that might have to happen afterwards, in part because we simply couldn't handle the amount of salt that you would need in drink form. So salt is a really funny thing. To cool down, right, we need to evaporate water off our bodies. And we don't actually need to the, – the salt is just incidental, mm-hmm. kind of like a lot of the other stuff that's coming out. And in fact – our body needs salt. And mm-hmm. so our body actually tries to conserve or uh, keep some of that salt from coming out in sweat, right? So because all we really need to cool down is to evaporate water off our bodies, not, not the salt water. Uh, some people are better at kind of saving salt than others. And it's a, it's a real continuum. And, and some people lose uh, quite a bit of salt. Um, somebody who is not really good at keeping salt, who is perhaps uh, doing like extreme, extreme endurance exercise and sweating hard all day long, could lose as much as about 25 grams of salt a day was one um, number that uh, I got. Although most of us lose much less, right? So more in the like... 10 and less on a very hot, sweaty day. Like that's the like far extreme. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, like obviously we need to replenish not just uh, the water, but but also the salt and enter sports drinks. And they, you know, promise to replenish electrolytes. But, you know, if you really look at the numbers, um, they don't quite uh, add up very well. So, I mean, first of all, just think about that salt, that, the, the, the sweat that you've tasted either on your body or on somebody else's. Imagine a whole cup of that, right? So if you're going to drink those electrolytes back into your body, um, mm-hmm. you would need to, you know, drink mm-hmm. as much as you lose. That a cup of sweat, right? That amount of salt that you would need to consume would be unpalatable, unpalatable in liquid form, right? 
And so sports drinks have, you know, a much lower amount of salt in them. And they compensate uh, for the awful taste of salt by adding a ton of sugar, <laughs> right? And so, you know, you could imagine that somebody who's doing a hard workout or, you know, an endurance event might want to worry about, you know, protecting their electrolytes, you know, replenishing them. Um, and they might want to have the sugar to give them a, a boost. But quite honestly, you know, the benefit of a sports drink is just that sugar boost because, you know, the amount of electrolytes that you you lose, you really have to consume that via food. And, you know, there's been a, a huge study done by a, a group of, of uh, Oxford researchers that was published in the British Medical Journal. It was uh, widely covered. And, and effectively, for, you know, sports drinks to replenish electrolytes, like for most people, they are consequently just consuming a huge amount of sugar, which is, you know, counterproductive to the calories you might have wanted to lose in your workout. Although your, your phrase cup of sweat makes me think there might be a market for, you know, sort of a hardcore hydration product, which is just, well, you can actually buy artificial sweat, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Just... Yeah, exactly. Like there, all sorts of uh, labs actually want uh, artificial sweat uh, to do, you know, experiments. So to, you know, make sure that, you know, clothing dyes don't leach out in sweat or that, you know, your iPhone still works with sweaty fingers and, and stuff like that. So there's this market for uh, artificial sweat, but I don't think you drink that stuff. Um <laughs> <laughs> So in my household, which is actually comprised of, of two women, that's my wife and daughter, and then me, one man, um, you know, I sometimes feel after exercising or whatever that, you know, I'm sort of like the sweaty man and then I'm somehow more more odorous than my clean wife and, and daughter. But, you know, it, and I feel like there might be a, a perception out there even in this day and age, but are, is there actually any difference between men and women, the way they sweat, the type of sweat we produce, the odor produced by that sweat? Um, so you're, you're referring to the like adage, oh, women glow and men perspire or men sweat and, and women glisten. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, in terms of the biology of just uh, like cooling, you know, that eccrine sweat, that salty stuff, on average, there's like very little evidence to support major sex differences in sweating, despite um, these, you know, cultural references. So women tend to have uh, more sweat glands per unit area, and men tend to have a higher max sweating rate. But many of these uh, differences reported can be attributed to other factors, such as body size, aerobic capacity, exercise intensity. Like, um, sweating has a lot to do with your, like, surface area to volume ratio. So like it, it's, you know, it, honestly, there's not a lot of um, differences in, you know, the biology of sweating. And, you know, I, <laughs> I sweat a lot uh, and I've, I tend to like sweat more voluminously than um, the, the men that I've uh, been with. <laughs> okay. So uh, you mentioned before about these, you know, when you write a book on a topic like sweat, you sometimes you know, get a lot of uh, opinions solicited and, and otherwise, um, but you call them sweat confessionals. I'm just curious if any other you know, particularly interesting ones spring to mind. You know, when, when you put yourself out in the front lines of 
an, an ambassador of, of sweat, <laughs> if you will. Um, what, what, what do people come to you with? So I think uh, a lot of people are really worried that they uh, either sweat too much or sweat too little. Like it's interesting. People have um, a concern kind of in one direction or the other. Uh, but mostly people come with like, wow, I or my friend uh, sweats in this really weird place um, more than anywhere else. What is going on? Or one <laughs> armpit is stinkier than the other armpit or one armpit is like super sweatier than the other. And it's like I get sweat patches on one side, but not on the other. Is there something wrong with me? So, yeah, it's it's like all sorts of like just funny little, you know, funny little concerns. And, you know, because sweat is uh, something that we all do as humans and because it's also something of a taboo, I don't think a lot of people talk uh, enough about you know, just like the normalcy of sweating. And, mm-hmm. and I guess that's a little bit why I wrote the book was just to kind of, you know, make this topic less taboo and, you know, to give, you know, perspiration a little pep talk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, it's a fascinating read. And I feel like, you know, it, it's not going to change the way I sweat or how much I sweat, but it, I, I feel like I now have a, a new relationship with sweat itself and my body that, and I also have a lot of talking points for when I'm out on that out of that group ride with all those guys and I'm sweating all over the place, I can sort of explain what's going on. So um, thank you very much for that. <laughs> I'm glad I've given you some sweat self-justifications uh, to, to use at your disposal. <laughs> <laughs> that was Outside Magazine contributing editor Tom Vanderbilt talking with Sarah Everts about his sweat issues and also her new book, The Joy of Sweat, The Strange Science of Perspiration. Tom also wrote a story about what he learned about his sweating from Sarah's book. You can read that piece on Outside Online. This episode was brought to you by Sonos, maker of the Sonos Roam, the portable smart speaker for all your listening adventures. Check out the Roam for yourself and discover sound made easy at Sonos.com. The Outside Podcast is made possible by the support of our Outside Plus members. Learn more and join at OutsideOnline.com slash OutsidePLUS. Outside Podcast listeners get 25% off an Outside Plus membership with the coupon code OutsidePod.